Open up with me to Acts chapter 8. Just want to say, isn't that like the best words you could hear a pastor say? If you have your Bibles, open up with me. Come on. We are a Bible teaching church here at Redemption. We love the Bible. And so if you brought yours, you could go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8. If you didn't bring yours, don't worry. We're going to put it up on the screen or you can use the fake Bible on your phone. But either way... Grab your Bibles and open up with me. We're in Acts 8. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts that we're calling The Church so we can learn from the first church some lessons that we can apply to our church so we can be the church. And we're doing this series as we're leading into the grand opening of our new building because when God sends hundreds of people to redemption, we want to be a healthy, growing church for them to get plugged in and to experience life change. Amen. And so while you're finding your place in your Bible, I want to open up by by telling you a story I read. Uh, a news story that I read uh, on Facebook because I'm a millennial and that's where I get my news from, Facebook. Anybody else? All right. Well, um, it was one of those clickbait cringy articles. Do you ever click on those? Like I'm obsessed with those cringy clickbait articles that are like, you won't believe what happened. And I'm like, no, I wouldn't. Click on it. I'm like, oh my, I didn't believe it. Anybody else? Okay, that's, that's, I, that's where I spend most of my time. Um, and I, I read this about the world's most expensive painting. It was bought in 2005 at a estate sale in New Orleans for $1,700. A few years later, it was sold for $450 million. It was a lost Leonardo da Vinci painting called the Salvador Mundi. And they thought, we have found a lost painting from the Leonardo da Vinci. And it was sold and hung in museums all across the world. But there were people who were skeptics. They didn't believe that it was real. And so it went under a series of investigations and a process to determine if it was genuine or if it was fake. And after years, it was revealed that it was a counterfeit. It was a fraud. It wasn't a real Da Vinci painting. It was a copy of a copy, but it wasn't the actual thing. And I just thought, I couldn't imagine spending $450 million on anything, right? Except for multiply. Come on, we need that new building, right? But I don't know what's worse, right? Spending it on a painting or finding out that the painting you bought was a fake, And I thought that's going to be the perfect illustration to open up my sermon today because we're going to meet a a man in Acts that on the surface he looks real, genuine. But upon a closer investigation with a little examination, he's proved to be nothing more than a fraud. He is not who he says he is. He is a, a fake. He is a counterfeit convert. He is a fake Christian. And the sermon title for today out of Acts 8 is this, Are You a Fake Christian? You know, it is possible for someone to say there's something and then not be that thing. Like, you know that is possible, right? Like, some people, they profess a faith they don't possess. They they say there's something, 
but then their life doesn't line up with who they say that they are. It's possible for someone to say something and then not be that thing. I'll give you an example. My name is Byron, and I am a prima ballerina. Y'all watch me, watch me, right? I can pirouette, I can be in first position, I can get in second position. I am a prima ballerina, right? And you'd say, no, you're not. And I'm going to say, who are you to judge me? I'm a ballerina in my heart. It's 2023. I can identify as whatever I want, right? I am a ballerina. You don't get to tell me my truth. My truth is I'm a ballerina, right? You say, no, Byron, because your truth doesn't line up with reality. Because you don't carry the culture of a dancer. You don't look like a dancer. I've seen you dance during worship, and Lord, you need some help, right? You, you can't even clap on Pete, let alone keep one. Like, you, you're not, because my, my life doesn't mind, match up with my, my words. My actions don't match my words. And when it comes to Christianity, there are people who profess a faith they don't possess because they don't practice what they preach. Like, it's possible for people to claim to be a Christian and then not be one. And we're going to see a man in the book of Acts who on the surface looks like he has everything all together, but upon a closer examination, he turns out to be a fraud. And this is important because some of us might be wondering, like, Byron, why are you preaching this message? Like, I, I, I want to hear a good word, a happy word. Pat me on the back and tell me everything's okay. This may not be the sermon that you wanted, but I believe it's a sermon that many people need. It's important for us to sometimes take a look in the mirror because here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves, not test your neighbor. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Which means that most of us, we're going to pass the test. But some of us may not, which is why it's important for us to examine ourselves on occasion, from time to time, to take a look in the mirror and be like, am I who I say I am? Am I professing faith? Or am I practicing what I know to be real and true? Do I profess the faith? that I actually possess. We're going to look at Simon and we're going to learn some lessons from him. Five signs of a counterfeit Christian. And then at the end of the message, I'm going to give you one sign that you can know for sure whether or not you are saved. I'm going to give you five signs of, of counterfeit Christianity. We're going to read the whole text. We're going to make some observations. And then I want to give you the five signs of fake Christianity. Here's what we see in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon. Let's pause right there for a sec. I promise we'll get through the whole thing, all right? But where are we at in the book of Acts? We're in Acts 8. 
We're in a region known as Samaria. So the gospel starts in Jerusalem. Jesus gives the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem, but because of a persecution that breaks out after the death of Stephen, the church can no longer gather together. So they've been scattered across the region. God uses what the enemy meant for evil, turns it around for good, and it begins to spread the message outside of Jerusalem. May it be said for redemption as well, that what God does in this building doesn't stay in this building, because if it stays in this building, it dies in this building. It is meant to go forth into all of the world, starting with the church, and then into our communities, and then to the nations. That's God's goal for us. So Philippi is a follower of Jesus who enters into this region known as Samaria, and he begins preaching, and people start getting saved, and revival breaks out, and then a man named Simon shows up, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying of himself that he was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called the great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But then they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. This is an important word. I'm going to show you three things right now. I want you to circle them. He believed. He was baptized. He continued with Philip, seeing signs of great miracles that he performed. Number three, he was amazed. He believed. He was baptized. He was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, they heard about what was going on in Samaria as they received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that he might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter turned and said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray that God, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me that the Lord, nothing of what you happened said may come upon me. Now, when they testified the spoken word of God, of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, let me show you a couple of reasons from this text why I've come to the conclusion that Simon is not who he says that he is. Simon is a fake. Because on first glance, it looks like he's got everything together. All the hallmarks of what we would consider a authentic Christian experience. He believes He's baptized and he's amazed. Question, are those good things? Yes, those are great things. Like we want 
people to believe. We, we see it in our church right now, like what God is doing here. As you're inviting your friends, as you're coming in, you're hearing the gospel message. I love to see what God is doing. This year, we've gone from three services to four services. By the end of the year, we might be at five services because what God is doing, it's amazing to see. Our small groups are filled. Next Steps is packed every single first Sunday of the month. People are giving generously to help us reach our goals with Multiply, to build our new building, to serve our community, and to send out missionaries. I love seeing what God's doing because of the heart of the people in the church. That's amazing. What about baptisms? Oh, man, I love seeing baptisms. There's over 400 baptism locks on our wall since we opened the doors of our church. Just recently, we baptized 38 people. This year alone, we've baptized 70. And we have another baptism Sunday coming up in December. We could have over 100 baptisms this year at Redemption Church. It's it's amazing. Do we want people to be amazed by God? First Wednesdays, the altars are filled. People are being healed and we're laying hands on the sick and we're seeing marriages restored, addictions be broken, friendships formed. We're seeing faith be found. Isn't that amazing what God's doing in his church? Question is, is that enough? Is that proof? of salvation because someone believes, because someone's baptized, and because they're amazed. Is that proof? Well, the Bible says that demons believe. See, belief is about information. Faith is about transformation. Belief is about, tr about truth. Faith is about trusting. Believing is not enough on its own. What about Baptism, are we saved by baptism? No, we're not saved by baptism. But because we are saved, we are baptized. Don't get it backwards. What about amazement? If that was true, then Jesus would have a lot more disciples than 12. Because everywhere Jesus went, he performed signs and wonders, and the people still didn't believe, even though they were amazed. They still didn't have faith. Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. So belief is not enough. Baptism is not enough. Amazement is not enough. On the surface, he looks like a Christian, but then Peter and John show up, and upon a greater examination, we see that he fails the test. Why? Because when they're laying hands on people and people are being filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what Simon says. Oh, I got to get my hands on some of that. Can I buy that so I can incorporate it back into my sorcery? And then Peter responds and he says this. May your silver perish with you. In the Greek, the, the, the literal phrasing of that means to hell with you and your money. Because he's not saved. And then he says he's wicked. Look at the text. It says that he has the gall of bitterness. That means that the center of his existence is still dead. And then it says that he is bound in iniquity. Romans 6 tells us very plainly 
That the moment we become Christians, you've been set free from sin and you have become slaves to righteousness. We are no longer slaves to our sin, but we become sons and daughters of the living and the holy God. We are raised from death to life and we have been set free so we can live in freedom. And Peter looks at him and says, Simon, on the outside you got it all together, but on the inside your heart's crooked and wicked. You are still a slave to your sin. You have not been set free because he's not actually truly saved. Listen, you can know about Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. Did you know that? If you grew up in Southeast Texas, this is a word for you. Because many of us, we grew up going to church we grew up in Sunday school. We went to Awanas. We went to Royal Rangers. We, we learned all the Bible verses when we were kids. We went to youth group and we played the games. You went to summer camp and that evangelist scared the hell out of you one, one weekend. And you know about Jesus. But your life isn't following him. And if somebody asks you, hey, do you know who God is? You would say, yeah, but my question is, does God know who you are? One of the scariest verses you can ever read in the Bible is, Lord, Lord, on that day, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Did we not preach the gospel in your name? And Jesus says on judgment day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. It's not about knowing Jesus. It's about Jesus knowing you. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know, if you know what I mean. You can know about Jesus and not be changed. You can know about Jesus and still not worship him. You can know about Jesus and still not serve him. It's about on the inside who you are radically different than the day that you met him. It's about what God is doing in your life through Jesus. It's about knowing him, not just knowing about him. Simon knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. He went through the rituals, but he didn't have a relationship. And some of us, that's what we've thought, that if we go through the rituals, if we do the routine, then we will have relationship with him. But that's not how any of this works. It's not about who, what you do. It's about who you know. Do you know Jesus? Does Jesus know you? This is important for us because I believe in our church and I believe in churches all across America. There are Simons in our midst. People who profess faith but don't practice because they don't possess genuine, true, real, authentic, saving faith. So my question for you is, are you a real Christian? Or are you uh, fake? It's important because I told you, I was like, I can't imagine spending $450 million on a fake painting. But I think what might be even more tragic than that is if you spend your whole life thinking you're a Christian before you stand in front of God on Judgment Day and then you realize you were a fraud. Because you professed a faith you didn't possess. And so what I want to do is I'm going to give you five qualities of a fake Christian or a counterfeit Christianity. 
We find them in the text. I'll walk through them. The first one is this, is you have good works but not God's grace. Look what the text says about Simon. It says this, but there was a man named Simon who previously practiced magic in the city, and they were amazed, the people of Samaria, saying he himself is somebody great. And they all paid attention from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God, and that is called the great. Simon really thinks he's somebody, doesn't he? Everybody come see how great I am. Come see how amazing I am. Be amazed by me. Look how great I am to the point to where everybody else is like, actually, yeah, that guy's pretty great. He's a a pretty great dude, right? He is a a great guy from the least to the greatest. They're like, Simon's great. And there's a myth going around in American Christianity that would encourage people that good people go to heaven. That we go to heaven because we're, we're good people. We walk our dog, we pay our taxes, and we don't beat our wife, and so we're good people. And good people go to heaven. In fact, Arizona Christian University teamed up with Barna Research, the largest Christian research company here in the States, and they discovered that 56% of evangelical Christians think that good works gets you into heaven. Which means to tell me that either one, 56% of our Christians don't read their Bible and are biblically illiterate. Which I hope is the case because on the other hand, it means 56% of Christians aren't actually Christians to begin with. Because the the Bible is, is clear that we are not saved by our works, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Ephesians 2.8 tells us so that no one can boast. Like, do you know the only way that you can think you're a good person is because you are proud? Because you boast about your works? Like, here's the, here's the way that people come to the conclusion they're good. You know how you know you're a good person? Because you compare yourself to somebody worse than you. Which doesn't make you a good person. It kind of makes you a jerk. Because you have to compare yourself to somebody who's worse off than you. And can I just tell you that the standard that God judges is not good, but perfection. You should not be comparing yourself to other people. You should be comparing yourself to Jesus because Jesus is the standard by which God judges. And when you compare yourself to Jesus, we all see that we all fall short. Listen, heaven is not for good people. Hell is not for bad people. Heaven is for forgiven people. You need to be forgiven. And it's not by your good works. It's not by your good deeds. It's not by sending out good positive vibes to the universe that saves you. It is only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that anyone will ever be saved. Heaven is not for good people. It's just for for forgiven people. Come on. Amen. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion would say, if you're a good person, at the end of your life, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then maybe God will love you. You have to work hard, try hard, do good, follow the five pillars of Islam, five, the seven ways of Eastern religion and the paths that Buddhism and reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt of Hinduism. New Age Paganism says if you pray to this tree and recycle, then you can become one with the universe. Or maybe some of you grew up in religious traditions where they told you you have to read this translation of the Bible. You have to wear these clothes, and you can't drink, can't smoke, can't chew, and don't go with girls who do. 
All of that is your attempts to earn your salvation before God by your good works. We are not saved by our works. Salvation is a free gift given to you by Jesus, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, and not because you're great, but because he is. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace. And if you're relying on being a good person to make you good enough, you're not a Christian. You have a counterfeit Christianity because we are saved by God's grace. For by grace, you have been saved. Second thing is you are spiritual but not spirit-filled. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I'm spiritual. Demons are spiritual. The goal is not to be spiritual. The goal is to be spirit-filled. Some of you ladies, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a word for you in the dating scene right now. Go on a date with a guy, ask him, do you believe in God? I, yeah, I believe in God. I'm spiritual. That's not what I asked you. Demons believe, and I ain't willing to date no demon, all right? I said, I said, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, that's a different question these days, right? Because we live in a society that is spiritual, but not spirit-filled. Simon was spiritual. He was a sorcerer. He was a magician. He was a Samaritan. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Samaritans. Samaritans are not Jewish. They're, they're half Jew, half pagan. Here's, here's the background on Samaria. During the Babylonian exile, when all the Jews were sent away, after God set them free, he told them, return back to the land, build the temple, and discover the law, build the wall. So the Jews, they all went back to their homeland of Israel. And in that moment, there were some that stayed behind in Babylon. They didn't go back. They disobeyed God's decree for them. Then they begin to intermarry with the Babylonians and adopt their pagan practices. When the Greeks and the Medes, the Persians, and then the Romans came in, they incorporated all of their false gods into their act of worship. So on the surface, they looked like they were practicing Judaism, but under the surface, they incorporated paganism into their, their practice. So they had their own Bible, they had their own Messiah, they had their own temple, and they practiced their own unique blend of Judaism and paganism. It would be very similar today to, you know, voodoo that's happening in Central America, where on the surface it looks Catholic, but under the surface they're practicing incantations, divination, psychic powers, and, and, and voodoo dolls, and casting curses and spells, and, and, and witchcraft. It would be very similar. It was a syncretized religion. And in our society, that's what a lot of people think. I can have Jesus and I can have Buddha. I can have Jesus and I can have Eastern meditations, Zen philosophy. I can have Jesus and I can have my crystals and my tarot cards. I can have Jesus and I can have fill in the blank. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. All of that is syncretism, which means you are spiritual, but you're not spirit-filled because you're unclean spirits, and then there's the Holy Spirit. The question is, which one are you full of? 
Say, Byron, why do you keep talking about this stuff? I talk about it because you've never been taught it. You know, one of the number one trending things on social media right now is witch talk. The fastest growing religion in America right now amongst Gen Z and millennials is Wiccan and and neo-paganism. My cousin right now, 18-year-old, grew up in the church. Now she has a collection of rocks that she would rather be healed from than coming down to the altars and have her hands laid on by a church to pray with her. Because nobody ever taught you this. You've become ignorant of it. I mean, the Bible talks about this all the time. Look, look what it says right here in Deuteronomy. It says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their sons or daughters in the fire. He's talking about false gods. I just want to correct something in your mind, especially those of us who grew up in church. When you hear the word false gods or idols, you think that that means imaginary or fake. It's not what it says. False means wrong. False means not true. Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, God of the New, God of the Bible, is the true God. Therefore, have no other gods before me, which means there are other gods that are demonic beings, false gods in which people make sacrifices for. Every other religion behind it is a demon God leading people astray. And people are worshiping these false gods. And you think, they're so silly. How would they bow down to an idol and worship some imaginary god? It's not imaginary. It's not fake. It's false. And how do people worship and what are the powers that come with this false god? He he, he talks about it here. He says, let this not be found among you, practicing divination, sorcery, interpreting omens, engaging in witchcraft. Casting spells or a medium or a spiritist who consults with the dead. Let no one be found among you. He says, have nothing to do with it. Why? Not because it's not real, but because it is. And Simon, he is a a sorcerer who's using demonic powers to manipulate and to fool people until the Holy Spirit shows up. And the people discover what true, genuine power actually is. Can I just tell you, don't look for power in the wrong places. There is power that comes from the Holy Spirit, and then there is a counterfeit power that will come from unclean spirits. Satan will deceive you with magic, with miracles, with signs, wonders, and witnesses, because Satan doesn't care if your body's healed as long as you're not going to Jesus. Satan don't care if you manifest your dreams as long as you're not chasing after Jesus. Satan doesn't care if you experience a presence as long as it's not the presence of the Holy Spirit. It could be the presence of a demon. Don't go looking for power in the wrong places. You want to know what real power is? It's the power of Philip. It's the power that he preaches. It's the power of the gospel because only the power of the name of Jesus has the ability to save. And only the power of the name of Jesus has the ability to transform you. It's the power that Jesus promises in Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's the power to witness. It's the power to overcome sin and temptation. It's the power to pray and see answers to prayers. It's the power to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. It's the power to believe God for miracles. It is the power for direction, the power for guidance. It's the power for life. You want to know what true power is? 
the third member of the Trinity, God, very God, the one who hovered over the waters at the beginning of the universe, the one who empowered Jesus for his life and for his ministry, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now beating inside of your chest. That's the power you get when you give your life to Jesus. That's the power that comes from the name of Jesus. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And so don't go looking for power in the wrong places. Are you spiritual? Or are you spirit-filled? The goal is not to be spiritual. Say, why, Byron, why are you talking about this? Like two weeks in a row, like last week was the demon serpent. And now it's the sorcery, witchcraft, spooky sermon. Are you just getting us ready for Halloween? I'll tell you three reasons I talk about this. First reason I talk about it is because the Bible talks about it. At Redemption, we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And last week we saw demons. This week we see a witch. We're going to see more come up. Five more encounters with demons, warlocks, witches, and sorcerers in the book of Acts. The church will encounter demons like a gardener encounters snakes. We need to know what to do about it. Number two, I teach it because you never taught it to your kids. Go home and ask your kids what they're watching online, what their friends are getting into in schools. Opening doors to demonic. Because for generations, the church taught them that that stuff was false, but we didn't teach them that it was real. And so now they're looking for power at all the wrong places. And then three, I talk about it because of this picture. As a couple from our church after last week's sermon, they went home, they grabbed all their books of witchcraft, Ouija boards, tarot cards, crystals, and voodoo dolls. They texted me, said, Pastor, what do I do with it? I texted them back, Acts chapter 19, burn it. They did because they found a power that they never experienced before. The goal is not to be spiritual. The goal is to be spirit-filled. Number three, you made a decision, but you're not a disciple. You say, Byron, you're, you're taking a little liberty with this text. Like, I just keep, I can't, can't, can't get away from the fact that they believed and they were baptized and they were amazed. Isn't that enough? Well, what happens is that when Peter shows up, and they begin to pray. He sees the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says, i got to have me some of that. And so he tries to buy it. Why? Because he wants to incorporate it back into his shtick. Simon never renounced his sorcery. He just had it hidden for a while. And what is underneath the surface, eventually God will bring it to the light. See, Simon had an experience but he didn't have salvation. He, was a, he made a decision to be baptized, but he wasn't a disciple, and there's a difference between the two. See, a decision is a one-time event. Discipleship is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong journey. Like, you can make a decision and do nothing with it, but if you're going to be a disciple, it means you're a student of, you're a follower of, you're living your life submitted under the 
teachings of somebody else. And Simon, he never submitted his old life. He just covered it up a little bit, and then eventually he was exposed as a fraud. Because he made a decision, but he was not a disciple. See, I think there's a lot of us growing up in churches who heard like, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Give your life to Jesus. Bow your head, close your eyes, and repeat after me. But the problem is Jesus never says that. Here's what Jesus actually says in Matthew 16. He says, if anybody were to come after me, follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. That's a lot different than the gospel we've been sold. See, we've been told that we're going to make a decision, and Jesus says, I didn't come here to make decisions. I came here to make disciples. So follow after me. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow after me. That means if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to leave your old life behind and your old ways behind. you got to lay it down, pick up your cross, and walk and follow after him. You can't come to Jesus with all of your past and all of your junk and say, I want Jesus and this. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me. Listen, you could be in church and still not be in Christ. You could be raised in the church. You can get saved and baptized in the church. You can get married in the church. You can have your wedding in the church. You can have your funeral in the church, and they can close the casket, and when you open your eyes, you'll still be in hell. Because you were in church, you did church, you were good at church, but you never were a follower of Jesus. You were never actually in Christ. Have you made a decision? I get worried for some people I meet because they're like, yeah, I believe in God and yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, tell me more about it. Yeah, when I, I, went, to, I went to youth group and man, I prayed a prayer. What does your life look like today? Oh, I haven't been to church since then. And I'm like, you're really going to bank your eternal existence on a prayer you prayed when you were 12? It's not about decision. It's about discipleship. It's not an event. It is a lifelong journey of walking and loving and serving and committing yourself to Jesus. Listen, you don't have to be perfect to be a Christian because no one's perfect. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus just as you are, broken and flawed. But Jesus loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. He wants to change you. You don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. You come to him just as you are. He will meet you where you're at, and he will change who you are. The question is for us is are we following after him? This means that some of us, we, we're going to go through these things in our lives that are going to be difficult and hard. Like for me, for example, I got saved at the age of 20. I grew up in church, but I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And then at the age of 20, God radically got a hold of my heart, and I began to, to grow, and I lost a lot of friends during that time. 
Because I realized when I hung out with my friends, I looked more like them and I stopped looking to Jesus. I had to set boundaries in my life. My addiction, I had to, I had to let it go. It took a while, but getting help that I needed and joining a church in a small group, those desires became strangely dim and far away. And then I joined a small group, and in that small group, that's where I grew the most. And I remember one night after a small group, a, a friend of mine, he came up to me and he said, hey, Byron, I, I need to talk to you for a sec. I said, all right. He said, hey, I, I got a verse I want to read to you. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what does that have to do about me? He said, you're living with your girlfriend. I know you're having sex with Ashley. It's a sin, bro. And I was confronted and I had to make a decision. What am I going to do with this? First, I got angry at Adam. I was like, who do you think you are to get involved in my life, right? He was a friend. That's who he was. Who cared about me. And so I made a decision. So we're going to put a boundary. 10 o'clock, I go home. Moved out of her apartment. I moved in with my grandparents. And for a year, I paid Ashley's rent while living in another house. Because I had to make a decision to submit my life, which includes my sex life, under the lordship of Jesus. Simon had to submit his sorcery. I had to submit my sexual desires and my proclivities and my habits and my addictions. What are, you, what are you submitting under the lordship of Jesus? Every one of us has to submit something. I don't know what your sin is that you're holding on to, but I'm telling you, it's holding you back from truly following after him. You will never give up something that God will not give back tenfold when you worship him. And Simon, he didn't surrender. A disciple is one who submits. Are you submitted under the lordship of Jesus in your life? Number four, you have remorse but not repentance. So Simon, he's confronted. Peter rebukes him. To hell with you and your money. So what's Simon's response here? He says, Peter, pray for me that what you said is not going to happen to me. Simon, how about you pray for yourself? You know, nobody can repent for you. No one can pray for you. You have to pray for you. No one can take responsibility for your soul but you. You have to take ownership of your soul, responsibility for your sin. Repentance is between you and God. You got to make that right between you and him. So just because your mom's a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Just because your spouse is a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're a Christian, don't automatically assume that your kids are Christians. Everybody has to take responsibility for their own soul and work out their own salvation before God. And so he's confronted, and he's remorseful, he feels bad, he's sorry, but he's not saved. We know this because church history outside of the Bible actually tells us. Here's one of the great things about being a Christian. Yes, we believe that the scriptures is the authority for our lives, but throughout all of church history, we have been people of the book, people who have written books and studied and written journals, and we have 
church history and the early church fathers that give us a little bit more insight into the text. And Irenaeus, an early church father, and Clement of Alexandria both write about Simon. And they say after this moment, he became bitter and hard-hearted towards the church. And he split the church and started a cult known as Gnosticism. A false religion. A counterfeit church. Because he was rebuked, but he didn't repent. See, a lot of people, they they come to Christianity because they want God to make them feel better. My marriage has fallen apart. Pastor, can you help me? Listen, it took you five years to ruin your marriage. I can't fix it in five minutes, all right? Like, you're like, you're like, help me, I'm, I'm in my addiction, I've hit rock bottom, my life is terrible, and I feel bad, and I come to church because I want to feel better, and that's, that's great, I believe there is joy, and love, and hope, and peace, and, and kindness that God wants to do in all of our lives, but listen, Christianity isn't about feeling better, it's about following Jesus. Through the ups, through the downs, through the highs, through the lows, in the good times and the bad times. Are you going to follow Jesus when it's great? Are you going to follow Jesus when it's terrible? Because in this life, you will have trouble. It matters what you do with it. Christianity is not about you feeling better. It's about you following after Jesus. If you want to feel better, get a self-help book. But if you want to be made new, give your life to Jesus. 2 Corinthians tells us the difference between remorse and repentance. It says this. He says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow, it brings death. There's godly sorrow, which is repentance, and then there's worldly sorrow, which is regret and remorse. And we need to know the difference because I think a lot of people are confusing remorse and feeling bad with repentance of being made whole. And many people feel bad about their life and their sins and their choices and their actions. And they're walking around in guilt and shame and condemnation wondering why Christianity isn't working for them. Maybe it's because you have a counterfeit version of what God has given to you. Let me tell you the difference between remorse and and repentance. I believe this is going to set some people free today. Number one, remorse is about guilt, but repentance is about grace. Guilt is... It's just going to make you feel bad about what you did, but it's not going to lead to actually changing who you are. Repentance changes you. Repentance is how the Christian life begins. That you, you are living your life in sin and in brokenness, living in your word, your will, your way, and then you're confronted, and then you begin to change. That's repentance. It's an about face. It's a change of direction. And now, instead of your face being towards sin, now your face is towards Jesus, and he changes you. You're not walking in guilt, but instead, you're living in God's grace. One is about condemnation and the other is about conviction. I don't want anyone to hear this message and be condemned. You know why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy comes to condemn, but God gives you the Holy Spirit to convict you, to lead you, to guide you into righteousness and paths of new living. Conviction is the courage to live the new life. One is about judgment and the other is about joy. When you live your life in remorse, you begin to judge God. You begin to judge others. You begin to judge yourself. 
And you feel like on your bad days, you're the worst version of yourself. And on the good days, look at you, you made it. Remorse will lead to judging. Because you will never measure up. And so in one moment you feel proud, and the other moment you feel despairing. It is a cycle that goes over and over and over again until repentance comes in and breaks the cycle. And you realize that God's good is greater than your bad, and there is mercies that are new every single morning. You get a first chance, second chance, third chance, 15th chance. You get a thousand chances with Jesus, and that's what brings joy. One brings harm, and the other brings healing. Like some of you, you were brought up in religious churches where every week the pastor would, would preach a sermon and it was like the Bible was a bullet and the pulpit was a gun and he would stand up here and just go and mow you down every single week. You're filthy, you're horrible, you're terrible, you're nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner, you'll never be anything more than a worm and you were taught that Christianity was about remorse because you felt bad. That's not the message that Jesus preaches. He doesn't identify you by your sin, but rather by his grace in your life. That you are a son, you are a daughter, you are a child, you are chosen, you are elect, you are a royal priesthood. You are no longer the sinner that they say that you are. You are a saint because that's who God says you are. And when you accept the message of repentance, it brings healing into your heart. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus my healing. By his stripes, you are healed. And then one leads to death and one leads to life. If you live your life confusing remorse and repentance, it will bring death into your relationships, death into your finances, death into your marriage, death into your kids. It will bring death in your job and it will bring death into the church. Remorse always leads to death. Because it doesn't lead to life. Many of you have been taught that repentance is a bad word. You've been told that repent is something that the church has abused. But repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is a biblical word. The first word out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repentance is an invitation to a new life. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come to make you feel better. Jesus came to make you new. The gospel isn't that that God takes bad men and makes them good. The gospel is that he takes dead men and he makes them alive. That the old is gone, the new has come. You are new creation in Christ Jesus. Who you were is not who you are. You have been made new. It's not about feeling better. It's about following after Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Are you loving Jesus? Are you you serving Jesus? Are you growing in your faith? Are you following Jesus? That's what matters most. Which leads to the fifth and the final point is you have lip service but not life change. Simon, on the surface, he looked like he had everything. He believed, he was baptized, he was amazed. But upon closer investigation, find out that he was a counterfeit. He had lip service, but he didn't experience life change. Look how the text closes. It says this, 
in verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages and the Samaritans. In many churches, you're going to find two types of people. Samaritans and Simons. The Samaritans are the ones who receive the message. Oh man, and they believe and they're baptized and they're amazed. And the Lord continues to grow them throughout their life. And you're seeing souls regenerated and, and lives being transformed. And you're seeing revival break out. And then even in the midst of them, there's still going to be a Simon. Jesus says the weeds and the tares, they grow together. There'll be 10,000 Samaritans and there'll be one Simon. The question we have to ask is, which one are, are you? Do you have lip service or have you experienced life change? You know, because what I don't want anyone to do with this text this week is this. I don't want you to, to weaponize it against somebody else. Say, what do I mean by that? I don't want you going to your small group and be like, what was your takeaway? My takeaway was, you're a fake Christian. Ladies, don't be elbowing your husband on the way home. Right? I don't want you to go to work and they go, hey, what was church about? You. Nobody should take this sermon and be like, I got a great sermon you should listen to and text it out to all of your friends, right? Because here, here at Redemption, we, we don't read the Bible like this. What is this, a magnifying glass? What does a magnifying glass do? It, it, it looks at everything else around them and it, it points out the flaws. Oh, I see all the failures in you. Let me tell you about you, right? I'm just looking at you. Oh, let me, let me point out all the problems in your life. We don't want to read the Bible like a magnifying glass. Jesus says, look at the two by four in your eye before you try to help your brother with the speck in his, right? And so we're not, we're not walking around with a magnifying glass looking at others. No, we don't want to read the Bible like it's a magnifying glass. We want to read the Bible like it's a mirror. Instead of looking at everybody else, sometimes we need to take a good look at ourselves. Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Take a look in the mirror to see if you're still in the faith. Examine yourself. Not examine your neighbor. Don't examine your husband or your wife. Examine yourself first. Am I who I say I am? Am I practicing the faith I proclaim? Am I Simon? Am I just going through the motions? Am I just relying on rituals? Am I just in church but not in Christ? Am I still in the faith? Is that what, how, how, how do we know? Because we rely on God's grace, not our works. Because you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, which the Bible says is the guarantee of your salvation. 
because you are a disciple of Jesus. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm not who I was. I'm journeying with him throughout life. I look in the mirror and I say, I'm becoming more like him. I've repented. I don't just feel bad. I feel God's love. And I'm not I'm not just giving lip service out here. I've experienced life change. I've looked in the mirror of my life. I've realized that God has been so So I will follow him. So how do you know if you're saved? Well, just like the painting underwent a process to be discovered if it's genuine or fake or counterfeit or the authentic. God has a process he sends Christians through. And it's the process known as sanctification. Listen, sanctification is the proof of your salvation. From the moment you meet Jesus to the moment you see him face to face, the process in the middle is the process God does in our lives as we begin to follow him. Are you being sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus every day? Not perfect, but you're making some progress in your life. Because Jesus changes us who we are on the inside till eventually it's evident on the out. You have a desire to read your Bible, to pray, to say no to sin, to say yes to Jesus. Your heart begins to soften to the presence of God. When a conversation about Jesus comes up, you don't run and hide. But you lean in and you say, let me tell you about Jesus.